Dear listener, did you know that women are only 10% of the cybersecurity profession? InfoSec Women will be gathering in Las Vegas for the inaugural TiaraCon, a free two-day conference created to advance the careers of women in the cybersecurity profession. TiaraCon is open to both men and women and will be held August 4th and 5th at Bally's in Las Vegas. See tiaracon.org for more information and registration. Show. Do the show. All right, here we go. Today is July 17th, 2016, and this is episode 165 of the Defensive Security Podcast. Back after the long summer of uh, a, a drought, I guess you might call it, uh, we, we, uh, we triumphantly return to your podcast it's listener. It's true. Bob, by the way, I hear has successfully made it out of Turkey. That's true. Yep. And um, I, he's being detained in Greece, though I've heard. The fact that he was in Turkey during a coup completely coincidental. <laughs> true. By the way, I'm Andy Khaled. Yep. Since Jerry didn't introduce me, and I just sort of well, I, I, it's been so long, I've forgotten how I to do this. Who are you? I, and I'm and I'm Jerry. Yep. So yeah, you're Jerry. I'm Andy. I'm Andy. You're Jerry. Uh, yeah, so sorry we took a couple weeks off there. S- stuff got crazy. Yep. And, you know, Jerry was traveling and I was busy. And But we're back now and that's all that matters. And we missed you guys so much. That's right. So, anyhow, getting into, uh, well, actually, before we get into stories, the, the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employers. It's true. Very important to Past, understand. Past, present, or future. Right. All right. So, getting into some some stories and some of the stuff is uh, is catch up, but I thought it was interesting to talk about anyway. The first story comes from the CBC News, which is a very you know very unlike us to cover a CBC News story. The title is "Antivirus Software Is Increasingly Useless and May Make Your Computer Less Safe." And uh, you know this uh, th- this by the way is in the wake of the the really horrible terrible earth melting semantic vulnerabilities that came out i guess about 2 weeks now 2 weeks ago now and that prompted a, a lot of discussion about you know is uh is antivirus actually worth it you know given what we saw with this semantic vulnerability the fact that th- these were really significant bugs that actually didn't require any user intervention you'd be better off not having antivirus if you were running Symantec in that particular case. And then when you when you pair that up with the fact that antivirus just isn't all that effective at protecting against uh, malware these days, you know, maybe that's uh, not a, uh, maybe it's time to rethink your, your strategy. Um, there were a couple of uh, specific points in here. One was about the uh, some of the new features in, in antivirus where it will proxy TLS connections. And there's a little bit of debate about 
you know, some people saying that's just absolutely horrible and untenable and others saying, you know, that's a, it's a really prudent thing to do. Uh, I, I do think that we, you know, as an industry, we have to be kind of cautious because antivirus is uh, a really big threat surface. You know, it is, it is processing or parsing most traffic and files that are coming through. And so it's, it's probably the most exposed uh, piece of software, one of the most exposed pieces of software you have on your computer. And as we're, I think, finding out, it's not maybe all that well written. So um, I still think there's a lot of value in antivirus, particularly from um, just the perspective of blocking the commodity stuff and also from incident response. But, you know, the, I'm slowly starting to... Uh, rethink my position but i'm I'm not there yet well it's an interesting challenge <clears throat> and and this this article i think is fairly good at laying out both sides of, of of this particular debate and i think in some ways antivirus has become a victim of its own success they even mentioned here that now what the bad guys have done is shifted towards the softer target which is typically users and i agree with that and they uh, go after some sort of social engineering or some sort of phishing attack to get a user to do something and not necessarily have to worry about uh, throwing vulnerabilities or viruses at people. But there, there's, there's more to it. We still see a ton of, of activity out there. And I think AV has a couple of reasons why I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon, regardless of the vendors who like to say that you know they're better than AV. Ultimately, antivirus protection has way too much momentum with executives and compliance and regulation regimes out there to go away. It's, it's, it's absolutely ingrained into most people's thinking, you, know, you must have a firewall and you must have AV, right? This was the first couple of things we had in the world of security, and it's like the first couple of words you learn in a foreign language. Man, it's tough to forget. And it's built into so many best practices and uh, compliance and, you know, you name it, somebody's checking to see if you're running AV. So regardless of how effective it is or not effective, I think that the, the feeling amongst enterprises and, and executives enterprises, if you're not running AV, you're probably being irresponsible with your cybersecurity, rightly or wrongly. Um, I, I also think you touched on a good point, which is that AV is, can be very effective in cleaning up a commodity outbreak. Or, you know, you've got something unique that you get the signature or you get the sample over to your vendor. They come back with an updated signature file and then that can help you clean it up, perhaps. Uh, is it as good as it used to be for frontline stopping? Well, that's a matter of some debate. We've got another article in here we're going to talk about a little later that <laughs> quotes that a vendor like Semantic had a 100% hit rate on certain types of testing with malware. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's tough to know. Um, you know, the other thing I'll mention too is that nowadays a lot of the AV vendors are doing far more than just AV with that particular client uh, if they're a big combined vendor. A lot of times they'll be trying to push uh, host intrusion prevention, uh, host firewalling, uh, DLP, and a number of other things into that same client that is doing AV, and the AV is, is uh, you know, an add-on. So I think like any pervasive bit of software that has excessive rights, if it could have a problem. Like we, if we go back way back to the target hack, their centralized management software, in theory, so we're told, 
for managing the software on their uh, you know their POS boxes got popped and was used to push out malware. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's oh, AD, AD, which you rant about all the time. It's all about <laughs> manageability and in ease of, of organization and controllability. And with that comes risk. Yeah, right? that's right. So do I think AV is dead? No. Do I think it's useless? No. Is it enough? Hell no. Yeah, absolutely. We have a, we, our next story talks a little bit about that too. I, I, I think... You mentioned something that that spurred a thought, and that is, you know, the 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 legal landscape. We we can't lose sight of the legal landscape, especially in the context of a company. If you if you divorce yourself for a second from the the perspective of the and you know the the consumer, from the per- perspective of a an executive or an IT manager, right? There's a there's certainly a spirited debate to be had about whether it makes economic sense to pay for, you know, to pay the renewal fee for your antivirus. But I'll tell you what, it's an entirely different situation if you end up having a significant outbreak and something bad happens and you are not running antivirus that's a whole different discussion than if you are. And, you know, on the one hand, you know, you're going to, you're going to see people questioning whether or not you know what the hell you're doing in your job if you're not running antivirus. And on the other hand, you can say, well, yep. look, you know, we're using, uh, you know, best in breed or, or, you know, nobody ever got fired for running semantic or whatever. Right. right? You know, so um, that's the other, I think the other anchor that's going to keep it around for a long time. Yeah, I think smaller organizations are more likely to be able to play with different technologies, whether it be micro VMs, whether it be behavior anomaly detection, uh, as opposed to traditional AV. But I think large enterprises, I just don't see AV going away anytime soon. Now, does that mean we don't have a risk and a concern like we saw with Semantic? Yeah. How often is that going to happen? I don't know. I mean, I, I think ultimately this comes down to any critical piece of software running environment, you've got to have the capacity to know what's in your environment and patch it rapidly. And then you can cope with these things. Yeah. Yeah. Now I I will say one of the, I I don't have, I don't think this article really covers it, but I recall in this particular instance, there was exploit code available relatively shortly after the, the, the disclosure. And one of the challenges that caused a lot of consternation I saw was there were a number of widely used semantic products that had no patch available at the time. And it was, right. you know, I don't exactly remember how long it was until uh, there was, but it was a significant amount of time. And so that kind of goes back to the discussion we've had in the past about, you know, think about what you would do. You know, I I haven't heard, fortunately, I haven't heard of any, uh, any significant issues with... Um, you know, with with organizations suffering consequences from that vulnerability, but you know, I'm not sure that we would hear about it either, right? Or maybe we won't find out for six or eight months. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, something to keep in mind. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point too. That if your only reaction is to patch, you probably need some more mitigation techniques to deal with zero days that don't have patches yet. Yes. In, including in your security software. I mean, that's. I think this is the blind right. spot that a lot of people don't 
think about. So even in the mature companies, mature organizations may you may have uh, some kind of strategy for different lines of business applications, or maybe they have a big red button to uninstall Flash from everybody's computer at the same time. I don't know. But I'm I'm going to guess that a lot of organizations probably haven't gamed that out on their uh, on their antivirus. No. So, no, I think you're right. Um, anyway, moving on to our next story, which comes from CSO Online, and the title is Nine Critical Controls for Today's Threats. Oh, boy. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So, uh... Uh, there's really, I mean, there's, obviously there's nine. There's one that I just wanted to beat into the ground for a second. And that is number one, which is least privilege. <laughs> Funny. I have a ton of notes around that one, too. <laughs> so uh, so uh, this is one of those, I mean, it's obviously a, a very, very fundamental concept in security. And I don't think anybody should be surprised that it is number one. And I think we can all agree that it is super important. The problem I see is that what least privilege means to you, to me, is different than what it means to you, and it's going to be different to every one of the ten thousand listeners we have. Right. And and not only that, it you know I I, I was talking with Bob, right, and Bob was telling me, and this was before he went to Turkey, so um, haven't talked to him since. But um, you know he was he was telling me that. You know, he's seen a lot of a, a lot of companies get compromised because they, even though they think they are uh, implementing least privilege by, you know, doing things like uh, only opening firewall ports that are specifically allowed, the the challenge is that, you know, the the, the least privilege construct leaves things open to interpretation and doesn't have really any kind of consideration or risk. So yes, right. it makes complete sense that we have to, uh, you know, we need to, to let our employees uh, access RDP from the internet. Well, you know, we have a business reason, therefore it least meets least privilege and there we go. Yeah, I completely agree. In fact, that's the first point I had on this is, is I want to quote a portion from the article and I apologize to the author, but this is what we do on the show. Uh, so he basically says users should never be allowed to install applications on the devices. Further, applications not residing uh, on the organization's software whitelist should never reside on user devices, regardless of who is attempting to install them. Uh, and, and earlier, he, he also says that uh, endpoint design and access control policies uh, uh, often lean towards keeping users happy. This must change. While we should keep our employees productive, providing certain capabilities on devices used to process and store business information increases risks to unacceptable levels. End of quote. The problem with that, with that is it's an incredibly blanket statement. The, the concept of what an acceptable level of risk is is a very individual decision that only the people of that business should probably be the ones making. They need to know what is acceptable for them to do business, right? There, there is no such thing as risk-free business, and it's up to them to decide what's worth it, and then the free market will, uh, you know, kind of respond in kind, uh, ignoring certain regulations and compliance issues for just a moment. So how can he say it's an unacceptable risk to allow your user to install software without knowing the business risk tolerance? The other problem here is that the user experience 
has to be a part of the equation as much as anything else is. And sacrificing everything to the altar of security at the cost of productivity, at the cost of user experience, at the cost of everything else, uh, means you're going to get a, probably a couple of consequences that you've got to accept. One, if you lock these systems down so much uh, that people can't do what they think they need to do, they're going to find a way to go around you, which often means a rise in shadow IT. If a sales organization cannot get done what they want to get done, I promise you they're going to find a way. And typically, if it's really hard, they'll go out and do a stand-up, a cloud instance, a sales force, and go do whatever they want to do. Uh, secondarily, whether we like it or not, we are in competition for employees. And if I have a really unfriendly work environment, as perceived by my employees, such as no BYOD, you, you know, you, we don't have a, a wireless network, you can't do anything on your computer, you can't look at Facebook, you can't look at Twitter, and by God, you can't hunt Pokemon. That wait, actually wait, has... Wait, You didn't go there. No, you didn't hear that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that can have an impact on losing good employees. Now, is that a fair impact? Is that something you should care about? Well, that, that's something that only an individual corporation can decide. So fundamentally, we in security need to facilitate business in a secure manner, not dictate to business without conversation what they can and cannot do. Yeah. I, you know, one, one last one. Sure, go ahead. If you do go down least privilege route with applications, you can, and there are good tools out there for it, and I like them. I'm actually a huge fan of whitelisting technologies like uh, Bit9 or AppLock or whatever. However, here's the flip side of that. You have to know what the hell is going on in your environment to be able to do that properly, and you need to have a very responsive, well-staffed help desk to be able to respond to those requests coming in from your users. If you're not responsive and you lock them out, they'll go find another way to get things done. Okay, now I'm done. Yeah, I think that's the that's where I was going. That on the one hand, it's unfortunate, right? Because this is one of the few things. I mean, deep down, I agree with everything the author wrote here, right? But at the same time, as a business person, I have to wrestle with the fact that you know, if I want to be employed at a company, <laughs> it's it's really really difficult to take that. Um, you have to take that flexibility away from people, and uh, you know, and still have a have a career. Um, so what? So so figuring out that kind of middle area is the is the the challenge we have. And I think some of the some of the technologies like um, uh, reputation, you know, application reputation is sure. a possible. You know, but even, yeah. but it's not perfect, right? And no, but you could say, okay, my 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 users can only install apps that have a positive reputation by this app reputation service. That goes a long way. And anything that has no reputation or bad reputation, they can't install. That's a good middle ground right there. Yeah. Yeah, I just, uh, it, especially in larger organizations, it, yeah, th this is a this is a really really big trade off between not only productivity and security, but also between cost. Because, yep. um, you know, when, especially... Now, now, I think it's a different thing if you start off an organization in a controlled manner. That's one thing, right? But if you try to apply this to a, a really large organization, 
probably even a medium-sized one that hasn't had that historical that that kind of control historically getting from point a to point b can be astronomically expensive agreed and then you gotta you gotta ask somebody's gonna ask the question you know what was it worth it right i mean do we did we spend 10 million dollars to cover a one million dollar potential loss so yeah and, and to be clear this is an effective is an effective security control but it is not just about the control of you know the security control effectiveness there is more that goes into this equation yeah yeah absolutely so uh, some of the other things they have uh, listed here threat detection is number two so they point out that um, you know we anti-malware host-based firewalls uh, host IPS those are all all really good uh, but a lot of the threats that we are facing today you have to have kind of an integrated view of the of the landscape. Network segmentation, um, again, none of this stuff is, is super revolutionary, no, right? I did want to talk about network segmentation. Well, go ahead. Uh, all he says here is just it's a necessary control to prevent access, limit unwanted access, and to contain continuity events. Great. But here's the flip side. If you really want to do proper network segmentation you need to have really good firewall standing between those segments and you need to have really smart firewall admins who know their environment really well who can micromanage that firewall policy. Well, that and what is network segmentation? I mean, this, this, by the way, is very much like least privilege. Yeah. You know, it, because, because I, I think that Target felt very strongly that they had strong network segmentation in place. Indeed. And, and so it, we all know what happened there. Right, and that's that's the flip side of this. Right, is is uh, we we can go into this thinking that we have least privilege and we have network segmentation, and and then you know, something terrible happens and we're left wondering, well, you know, what happened? How how did that happen? We 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 followed the best practice. We segmented our networks, right? But we didn't think about how you know how, what was the right way to segment did, did we actually segment did our segmentation make sense and this kind of goes back to the point of i i feel like as an industry we were um, you know we're, we're the kind of the compliance mindset is yep. you know we, we don't we don't descend any further than oh do you have your network segmented yes Check i do box. right but i but you know i've got 10 ports you know, that are allowed from, you know, but yeah, the networks are segmented. Like they're on different IP addresses. Right. And, and, you know, and there's domain controllers and they all can talk to each other. And, oh, anyway, user awareness. Another one, um, you know, I, oh, this is nails on chalkboard for me. <laughs> users, users should always understand, I'm quoting here, Users should always understand what actions put the organization and themselves at risk. Clicking on email links, clicking on email attachments, sharing passwords, etc. Right? And, ooh, the Just showing up to work puts the business at risk. Let, let's get a little more... <laughs> I, the, We've been over this so many times that, that users are going to do what they need to do based on their incentives. <laughs> they, right? Oh, man. I, I, 
I, I don't know what more to say that hasn't already been said. Well, look, the problem the problem here that I see as well is that whether we like it or not, the average user is not a security person, and they're never going to be a security person because they got other stuff they got to get done. So we shouldn't make security our users' problem. Yes, we should educate them. Yes, we should do user awareness training. But if but if we're the reliant upon that we are always going to fail. There's been so many studies that have shown that phishing click-through cl- click rates are affected by the time of the day and the day of the week and the level of stress. And, you know, there's too many variables when it comes to user awareness for it to be a truly effective control, in my opinion. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, I don't view it as a control. And I know this is, I, I get into endless debates about this with people. It's really a, you know, it's a, it, it's a minimization effort it's not a control it's not like a firewall not <laughs> not the firewalls by the way are, are, are all that awesome either but at least they're usually deterministic um whereas people are not deterministic and you know the, the, this kind of it's not mentioned in this article but it's kind of implied with the writing that you know you want employees to think and actually i think in the previous article at the bottom there were some recommendations and one of them was you know, employee, your employees should should think about before they open an attachment or or, or open an email or you know cl- open an, uh, a link on an email. And I wonder what are you asking them to think about? You know, and and it it just um, by the way, this isn't even a this isn't even a, a a user space versus security space discussion. I know plenty of people who are security people who fall for this crap too, right? This is a human problem. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say security folks are perhaps more cognizant of it because they live and breathe and do this stuff all day long, and so their brain is in that space a lot because we're for- forced to be in that that mode of thought. But absolutely, a well-crafted fish or a well-crafted social engineering will get by... Plenty of security folks do. Yep. Let's see. Uh, incident response process is number five. Not much to say there. Web filtering, number six. Um, blocking high-risk IP ranges. I'm not sure how to differentiate that from web filtering. but Well, uh, you know what I would say is probably uh, I'm a big fan of, of geograph- geographically-based blocking of IP ranges. So if I don't need to be doing business in China and Russia and North Korea and Iran, and uh, just block those ranges entirely and with some tool that gets updated lists on a regular basis and just it cuts in a lot of crap. Yep. Uh, manage outgoing TLS communications. Basically... The, the point here is you should not allow your systems on your network to communicate with the outside world through TLS. Uh, I would read that as without you inspecting it. Uh, fair enough, yeah. Yeah, so proxy it in some way or do a man-in-the-middle inspection of it. So the concept is if somebody's doing a TLS connection out through your proxy and you can't intercept and, and read that session, that's bad. Yeah. Now, and, and here's t- super the, controversial. Here's the challenge. I, I don't think it's controversial in a business context at all, actually. I don't think there's any expectation of privacy from a business network. You've never been opinion. to Europe, have you? No, I have. I, I'm, okay, but in my view from a U.S. business-centric view, this should not, there should not be an expectation of privacy 
on your business communications from your IT security group. However, that may be different in different countries. Now, here's one thing that I did want to point out. I, I agree with this recommendation, however, with some caveats. First, doing full TLS uh, in inspection is incredibly CPU intensive. So you've got to build properly for that. You can't just turn that on in your average proxy and not have it bury the box. Uh, the other thing is we're actually seeing a shift away from certain cipher types with TLS that allow these sorts of man-in-the-middle inspections to ones that are uh, basically support per perfect forward security, which basically disables the capability for legitimate TLS inspection slash man in the middle. So that's a challenge because we're, we're getting to a point where we either have to proxy uh, these connections or something else. So this is a space to watch if you're doing this, that the industry starting to shift away from the types of ciphers that allow people to do this inspection easily. So something to keep an eye on. Yeah, I wonder how, uh, I wonder how the move towards cert pinning also can, uh, can cause problems yeah. here, right? So, because yep. I, I think, uh, in the context of of a, of a business, right? I mean, it's one thing if you're if you're talking about uh, inspecting, you know, inbound web traffic, and you have your your t your TLS terminating at some kind of load balancer. That's not the that's not the thing they're talking about here. I don't think they're really no, talking more no. about the outbound traffic, yeah. you know, the user space, right? And um, and that usually requires you to install a root certificate on each of your your endpoints, which then mm -hmm. is on your your proxy. And uh, but but it's not clear to me. It, I don't know. Um, I'm not. Maybe somebody can uh, educate me on this. Um, what happens like if you use Chrome, right? And you go to Google.com, and your proxy is trying to man in the middle. Of that does Chrome throw up all over it or or not? I, I, I don't know. So. I think it has a lot to do with the settings on your proxy. Could be. So. Uh, and then, and it, uh, oh, go ahead. No, as I say, again, that's just another one of, of, of managing your endpoints well. So I think you would have to install that certificate in all of the browsers that are pushed out to your endpoints to do it properly. True. And then uh, number nine was block macros, which I was fully in favor of until I started using macros. <laughs> and now I'm... <laughs> Isn't that always the way? Yep. Yep, yep, yep. See, you're an executive now, so it's all about what you want. It's about what I want. That's right. Make it happen. <laughs> need, need my fancy spreadsheets. Come on. <laughs> right. But, you know, that's such a perfect example of business use case versus risk, right? That's a perfect example. You, you it, know, it is, yeah. We're, we're, I, I've, I've been having a debate about flash in you know adobe flash and whether or not it should be present in the environment and and some people are like get rid of it right now and other people are like well you know we've got these 18 applications that we kind of require it oh right you know sometimes there's a reason whether you like it or not seems like a good idea yep yeah all right moving on to our next story this is the continuing saga of uh Sophos versus Silence. And this comes from bankinfosecurity.com and the title is Antivirus Wars, Sophos versus Silence. We really need bumper music. For we, we do. Maybe like circus music. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's got to be the really serious like breaking news. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I like my circus music. All right. All right. Tell you what. You can edit circuit music into yours. I'll edit serious music into mine. Fair enough. It'll be fine. Fair enough. All right. Um, so 
So we talked about this a couple of weeks back now, and at the time, the the perspective was that uh, you know Sophos had released this horrible, terrible video that offended Silence, and Silence um, kind of smacked their business partner who aided Sophos on that nose and got the video taken down. And so now this is the uh, kind of the the next. Uh, the next bit, I would say, you know, it's a probably, and we again we talked about this some, right? But but even more interesting than this particular bit of mud slinging back and forth between Sophos and Silence is the fact that there's just a lot of BS that goes on here. You know, this I'm is shocked. I know, I know. It's a big, it's a big. It's a big industry that's growing. I think they said about four percent a year, which is you know there's a that's a it's a big industry getting and getting bigger all the time. In this in this particular case, basically what's happening is that uh, apparently, if you believe everybody in you know their, their perspective, right? Sophos is creating videos with uh, with head-to-head competitions using silence and and. Sophos is neutering Silence's detection capabilities so that it looks great for them. And then when Silence produces, actually on their tour, they they have this, the unbelievable tour. It's so unbelievable. It's, I wonder if they have that song. But anyway, anyway um, uh, that really threw me for a loop. Um <laughs> I got that song in my head now. See, see, this is me. This is your anti-heckler training, right? This is me prepping you for live speaking. <laughs> yes. So, uh, so anyway, um, so Silence is it has this tour where they they're running around um, doing a head-to-head demonstration, and uh, apparently, allegedly, one of the customers at one of these events asked to see the Sophos configuration and Sophos of course was uh, um, you know had defaults disabled and so when they turned it back on then Sophos won in Silence's own thing and this again if you believe the kind of the blog post war that's going back and forth like none of the companies will actually talk about this so all of the stuff that we hear is from you know their own blog post about what the other company did which is completely ridiculous. The one thing we do know is that Silence doesn't apparently participate in any of the industry tests. But as we talked about last time, not entirely sure that's actually all that helpful anyway, right? Because it's, um, so I don't know. Um, It's, uh, it is informative, I think, to us uh, to to understand the games that are being played here. Yeah, I would agree. There's so much FUD that's happening in this marketing and sales space around IT security vendors. It's all about fear, uncertainty, and doubt. It's all about trying to break into the market. It's really, really, really hard to know what to believe. Especially, you know, if you really look at it, anytime that you're dealing with something that's testing like an AV or anti-malware tool, it's really hard to know how valid that test is, regardless of of who is doing it. Because that entire threat space changes so rapidly when we're talking about malware. Right. You know, we're talking on a, a 
in the course of minutes, malware will change its signature and change how it functions and morph. So anytime you've got a staged test of any type, it's really tough to know how valid it is because that malware could be months old, days old, minutes old, years old. Yeah, and you you are absolutely right. There is a um, there's a, a quote towards the bottom of the article, and they they talk about how this uh, site avcomparatives.org or .com. I don't know which one of them is probably a porn site. So sorry. Um, they had apparently a hard time getting a copy of Silence's product to test with, but they eventually did get one through a third party. And when they compared it against Symantec, now keeping in mind that the spat here is between Silence and Sophos, so this is kind of tangential. Uh, Silence apparently detected 92% of uh, exploits and 63% of um, in-the-wild malware, whereas uh, Symantec stopped 100% of in-the-wild malware and 92% of exploits. Now... You know, the, here's the here's the thing. It, this is gets down to definitions, right? When you hear in the wild malware, you should be thinking, what does that mean? Exactly. You know, okay, so to me that says, well, it's malware samples that have been collected, right, from honeypots or um, customers or, or whatever, things that people have been attacked with. But does that mean, I mean, it's to me it seems like they're positioning it as 90 or 100, Symantec is detecting and stopping 100% of kind of, you know, new malware arriving in the wild. And I don't think that's what's being said here. I yeah. think, you know, th because I assume that uh, they've had a chance to develop detection for that in the wild malware. It's so tough to know, even if you're looking at a third party test, uh, you know, but here's, here's, the reality is I see it. Somebody like Silence is the new guy on the block. They've got to get their name out there. They've got to make a splash. So in general, and I don't have any insider information, but in general, when I've been involved in startups or, or you know, kind of new entrants that are trying to be disruptive, there's no such thing as bad press. And the marketing and the sales guys will do anything, anything. Oh, that's a good point. To get their name out there. It's all fair. And their goal, ultimately, is to get in front of a customer and get an eval going. And to get the sales guys in front of the customer. That is it. That's, that's the entire goal of the marketing activities, is to get a sales team in front of a customer. Because they know, regardless of the strength of the tool, there are so many more considerations beyond the actual technical merit of a solution that go into purchasing decisions now. Yes, yeah, it's, it's the human factor. It's the, the effectiveness yeah. of the salesperson. Once you get in Absolutely. the door, you you know the the sales process takes over. Right. Not not the product. And you know, this is why sales teams are very rarely told negatives about their own products. They have to believe in their own products. Yeah. Because they have to sell it. And the product will get better. Don't worry. Yeah, we'll fix that in the next version. Whatever. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so I don't know who's right and wrong here, and it's really tough to know. Uh, we've had some folks on Twitter tell us that they really like Silence, and I've had other folks say, eh, it's not so good. I, you know, the reality is it's such a fluid environment that 
you probably do need to test it in your own environment to know for sure. But that's also the exact game they want is to really, truly get in front of you with their sales team. And here's the other question. Let's say you've got a 30-day eval going. What are the chances are you're going to get a hardcore AV or, you know, sort of virus attack at that particular point in time? And, you know, how are you going to test it? What's your test plan? How well, do you know? Absolutely. And, and also, you know, what, what exactly are we testing? Because... Yeah, are we testing it just doesn't add too much load to my box and doesn't right. screen the Windows server? <laughs> right. And, you know, it, I, I think from an efficacy standpoint, the concern I have is that you looking at the historical performance of an antivirus, particular antivirus solution is kind of like, and I know that I'm going to get some hate mail for this, right? But it's kind of like, um, you know, a stockbroker making, you know, it well, you know, historically that stockbroker has done a great job of picking winning stocks, but that doesn't mean that, you know, tomorrow that stockbroker is going to pick a, a stock because they don't have any magic, and and so that's my that's my concern here is that you know so yes maybe Sophos has been doing awesome, uh, but does that mean that they're going to be awesome tomorrow? I don't know. Yeah, and that is a great point that the landscape shifts so quickly. So anyway, uh, next story also comes from BankInfoSecurity.com, and this is the uh, browbeating uh, uh, post. Uh, Heartbleed update: America, the vulnerable. So. Uh, to cut to the chase, uh, two years after, over two years after the disclosure of Heartbleed, there are still 200,000 internet-connected systems vulnerable to Heartbleed, which is just sad, just amazing. So, and in, 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 to put it in context, at the time of the release of the disclosure of Heartbleed, there were a million and a half. And so, yes, on the one hand, it's gone down a lot, but... Not that much. Yep. Not, and um, boy. I, I think ultimately we just suck at patching. If it works, why patch? Yeah. I did find it interesting, by the way, that one of the two, thinking back to one of, this is kind of off topic a little bit, but one of the two companies, you know, remembering that Google was one of the companies that released that disclosed it, but there was also another company that, you know, coincidentally discovered it at the same time named Codenomicon. And uh, Codenomicon has, uh, you know, fortuitously been acquired. So, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm guessing the Heartbleed, the whole Heartbleed thing probably helped them out. Shocking. I know, it is. It's a big game. Um, but anyway, get your crap patched. Um, I, I, Get ye to the patchery. <laughs> I I will say by the way, I have uh, I have talked with Bob, and Bob is um, you know, he's exposed to lots of different organizations infrastructure, and there's a pragmatic problem here, right? That um, a lot of this stuff is is old and expensive stuff, and maybe not always viewed as you know well. What's the worst that could happen, right? You know, it, I don't have I don't have a fifty thousand dollars to buy another Cisco router right now, and the one I've got is end of life. Like that's the reality we live in. Yeah, and you know, there's some that say, well, they shouldn't be allowed on the internet if they can't patch your stuff, and well, that's a whole different debate. 
Yep. We need the county internet ex- inspector. Absolutely. <laughs> internet and password inspector. That's right. That's right. Uh, can you imagine like the, I don't know if you've, for those people who, uh, who, who aren't familiar here in the U.S., when somebody's building a house, um, you have to, usually in most jurisdictions here, you have to put out a sign in front of the lot, or even if you're making a renovation on a house, you have to, you know, you have to go and apply for a, a building permit. And, um, and there's certain key, um, milestones where, where somebody from the county will come out and inspect county or city. And, uh, and if, if you fail, right, if something's not right, they'll put this big red sign, like covering the, the, the plaque that you have to have posted that like basically discloses that the work has stopped. And I'm envisioning something similar, like, you know, the, the, the county internet inspector goes around to businesses and puts the big red sign on the front door saying, you know, you got to patch your heart bleed before you're allowed back on the internet. <laughs> so anyway, um, moving on to the next story from Reuters, likely hack of U S banking regulator by China covered up. So in uh, in the latest political hairball. This is a weird one. This is a very weird one. So the FDIC is a banking regulator here in the United States. Apparently, between uh, 2010 and 2013, they, um, they were hacked and a congressional report was just released uh, uh, outlining some information about the hack. Um, apparently the, the facts that we know were that there were, um, about, I think, uh, 12 workstations, including, uh, really senior people, the, the head of the FDIC and a a number of other executives and, uh, 10 servers, which had some undisclosed data on them, uh, were, were all compromised. The report makes an assertion that China was the likely uh, source of the attack, but there's really no evidence to back that up. And China is, is uh, beside themselves offended that the U S would, uh, would do that. Probably the most interesting and damning thing is that apparently there was an effort to cut, co- you know, quote, cover it up. Now it's not yeah. really clear covered up by the folks inside the inside FDIC. the FDIC that's right yeah. so the so FDIC the context is in the US different government agencies like the FDIC uh, have leadership positions who are usually appointees of the president and but the the presidential appointees have to be approved by Congress so this the Senate actually has has oversight of all presidential type decisions like that. And um, this apparently happened, this hack happened during the time frame of the Senate approval of the new, the newly named FDIC chief. And so the allegation is that this, these hacks were covered up by the FDIC and by the head of the IT group inside the FDIC to ensure that that FDIC's leader was uh, was not held up in the in the Senate confirmation. So, um, oh, that's high. You know, th- that's just what's in the report. Um, don't really 
don't really know for sure. I will say that some of the some of the I haven't personally read the report, but I've read a bunch of articles about the report, and I, it's not clear to me if there's some extrapolation happening here, right? Because there are comments in here are kind of rough quotes that basically say the um, the head of IT effectively told people not to talk about the incident or not to send right. emails about the incident. I will tell you that's actually uh, amongst mature organizations, that's not an uncommon thing and it's not indicative of, you know, a conspiracy or a cover-up. Well, it depends on who's asking, who has the authority to ask and who they were told not to talk to. If their oversight regulatory body who has the legal right to know that information was denied that information, that's a problem. I completely agree, and that's kind of the the flip side. The the, the challenge is, especially in the context of an investigation, and this kind of gets to the back to the point of you know we are we are inextricably living in a both in a um, new fast developing technology environment, but we're also beholden to this old legal environment, right? That and we have to live in both worlds at the same time. And one of the challenges that presents itself in the context of responding to incidents, this is something to think about um, really hard. And I would advise you to think, everybody think about this. In the, in the process of responding to an incident, you, cre- you can create a paper trail of things that may not be true, right? So sure. I think that, uh, you know, and, and, and by the way, we as IT people are often very cut and dry. Like, oh yeah, China just hacked into our, into my system, or you know, somebody uh, somebody just walked off with all the data. And in fact, that may not actually be what happened. And so, one of the it is a it is a common practice in a lot of organizations to put the kibosh on that because. You don't want to be creating a trail of stuff that's not factually correct. Yeah, look at any sort of crisis or breaking news situation or plane crash or anything. Usually the first couple of weeks of information is fraught with mistakes and factual inaccuracies and speculation. And, you know, we want to be dealing with facts. Right. And, and so I'm, I'm wondering, and I don't know, right? I don't know the full context here, but... The part of me wonders if the word that you know that what's what was said is, was basically that you know look you know we we got this we got this stuff going on you know let's uh, let's keep it out of email because we don't know you know we, it just is right I mean you you can love it or you can hate it it just is people <laughs> it's the way it works. Um, and, you know, and then at some point, there may or may not be a report. I can't tell, I can't talk to why the why Congress was never informed. I mean, that's probably the more problematic thing. But then I wonder, well, how did this thing come to the desk of the Congress in the first place? So I, there's a lot of questions I don't have answers to. Um, but, you know, it's not well, not a good look, but I'm concerned that there's some extrapolation happening. So it's interesting here. If you buy that the reason the cover-up happened was to protect the job of the chairman of the FDIC, I wonder how often a similar sort of cover-up or negative feedback loop happens 
with CISOs and CIOs covering up bad information to protect their job and therefore putting the company at risk. Uh, and is that a bad feedback loop that's causing that to happen? I'm sure it happens. No idea how often it happens, but I'm sure it does. And, and by the way, that's a personally very perilous thing to do. Oh, yeah. Right? It's um, not uh, recommended. Not a good plan. Not, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, the, the, look, there are, it is one thing to be ignorant and, and maybe bad at your job, but it is an entirely different thing to be malicious and um, negligent. Here's the thing. Is it malicious? Is it? I, I mean, what what you'll hear is from an executive is we're managing the optics of the situation. If you, we want to make sure that the right conclusions are drawn by sharing the right information at the right time to make sure that the, you know, they're, they're managing up. We're managing our executives. We're managing our board. There's always a good reason. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, I th and, I'm, and I'm sure, look, there's, this stuff exists on a continuum, right? But I guess my point is that if you have a statutory obligation to disclose something and you make a personal decision not to, you know, that's on you. Right? And, and Agreed. And, and if you, you're you in could be an orange, much right? Of a cut and dried situation, but I think a lot of folks aren't. True. I think a lot of folks are in a. Yes, you're right. You're right. So, um, so yeah, I mean, there there may be more to uh, to see. I'll I'll at some point go read the report and see if there's any any new uh, nuggets of wisdom I can get from it. The last story we have for today comes from the uh, the Talos blog. And the title is when paying off, or when, sorry, when paying out doesn't pay off. And I, this is a really uh, kind of in the weeds uh, dissertation about a particular piece of of uh, what I'll call quote ransomware. What, but I thought it was really interesting because I, I, I guess it was about two or three months ago. I I mentioned, you know, I think the one thing that would really kill the ransomware ecosystem was if someone started pumping out ransomware uh, that collected payments but didn't give you your files back. And uh, and so here we have a case where uh, there's this uh, piece of ransomware um, which apparently it, it just deletes your files, right? It, it, it prompts up or pops up a, a picture asking you to uh, to pay 0.2 bitcoins to a particular uh, Bitcoin wallet. And um, but at the time that you get that message, your files are already gone. It it yeah. the the, ran the the malware doesn't actually do anything other than delete your files. Yeah, it's it's fake ransomware. There's there's no there's give us money, but you're not getting your files back. Right. Now, but you don't know that, right? You think you will. Well, exactly, and that's the I think that's the um, that's the thing that is likely, you know, so. Uh, again, one of those, you know, one of those, uh, those chaotic good type people, you know, could, uh, I, I could see them trying to kill the, the, you know, the ecosystem by, by doing something like this. Now, at the same time, reading this article, it's pretty clear that this malware sample that they detected and analyzed isn't widely deployed. So it's not really clear where it came from or how they found it. Uh, but they, uh, they apparently don't see any transactions happening to the wallet. There was a transaction that predated the the sample and 
doesn't look like it was related to this. So, um, and it's by the way the same Bitcoin wallet for all um, for all of the the samples uh, allegedly. Uh, but it it doesn't seem like it's like been widely deployed. But again, I think this is um, you know this it's it's um, ultimately the thing that's going to stop ransomware is well, yeah, for people to stop paying. Banks, the other ransomware games have got to be pissed. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because this hurts their credibility as you pay, you get your files back, which is vital to that ecosystem. Exactly. Yeah, this is this is a, an interesting little debate. It was somewhat inevitable, right? Um, yeah. We'll see. The, the, you know, they may end up killing their own ecosystem before we can solve it. Because it's a nasty little ecosystem, I'll tell you that. Well, it is. It is. And I just, I, I think it's, ultimately, it's going to be this kind of thing's poisoning the well. That's that's probably going to to really kill it. So anyway, that is the show. Uh, hopefully it was well worth waiting for. Uh, I definitely appreciate everybody's patience with me as I uh, was gone for a couple of weeks and happy to be back. And uh, hopefully we'll be back on a regular regular schedule again. So if you, uh, if you like the podcast, give us some love on iTunes. You can uh, find links to all the stories we talked about today on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Callett on Twitter at Lurg, me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And with that, we'll talk again next week. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks, as always, for listening. See you soon. Take care.